If you would, turn with me to Hebrews chapter 13. Last week, we looked at leadership in the home and in the church, and we skipped verses 1 through 6 when we reached back to pick that up. And so let us read. Keep on loving each other as brothers. Do not forget to entertain strangers, for by so doing, some people have entertained angels without knowing it. Remember those in prison as if you were their fellow prisoners, and those who are mistreated as if you yourselves were suffering. Marriage should be honored by all, and the marriage bed kept pure. For God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. Keep your lives free from the love of money. And be content with what you have, because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. So we say with confidence, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? He's coming to the close of this exhortation letter, 13 chapters in our Bible. And so he's ending with these short, quick exhortations at the end for what has he been doing for 12 chapters, showing you Jesus is the best. He's the best way God ever revealed himself. He spoke in latter days, in the prophets in the past, these last days, he speaks to us in the Son. He's better than angels. He's better than Moses. He's better than the Old Testament sacrifices. He's better than the Old Testament priesthood. He is the best God has to offer. And he's been laying that argument for 12 chapters. Jesus is the best. Jesus is the best. Now he's talking to us and telling us who have fled to Christ for refuge how to live in a fallen world and how he expects us to respond Nothing he's going to say in the way of exhortation could the culture of the day practice. No one today can, will practice any of this. Only people who have accepted Jesus as the best. He becomes the modus operandi for our new life. He's the Savior. He's the power. So the exhortations, you must know this. Some people are afraid of exhortations which basically says, get with it, do it. And they'll say, well, that's legalism. That's moralism. Every religious group has a set of morals, and uh, you ought to do this, whether it's Judaism, whether it's uh, Eastern religion. Everybody's got a set of moralisms. Is Christianity a set of moralisms? Not really, because we say there has to be a new power and a new heart put in you before you could do any obedience. If you could obey apart from the Spirit, you could go back under the law. The law could command but could not enable you. Uh, you could command all day, but you can't enable me to. Christianity not only gives a new motive, gives a new heart, it gives new power to obey. You must start with Christ as Savior, not the moralisms, not the exhortations. You can't keep it anyway. But now that you belong to Christ, is he commanding us to do what he will not enable us to do? No, Christianity is a supernatural kind of life. Amen? And you have to have a supernatural source, a new birth, the power of the Spirit, and a Savior called Christ. Don't, don't impose any of these moralisms and any of these truths. Don't preach this to your neighbor. Would you let the gay pride go on today? Don't waste your breath telling people to be moral. You don't have the power to change them. They're, they live their lives apart from God. And what else did you think man would do when he evicts God from his own universe? When there's no God, there's no morals. When there's no God, 
There's no ordained boundaries. Who are you to tell me how to live? We are a people who have come under Christ, and so he becomes the new authority and the new direction and the new boundary for the way we live. He's going to tell them three things uh, in this passage they should be focusing their life on. Number one, they ought to be loving people. Love people. And this is the mark of true Christianity. And then he goes beyond that and say, you ought to love purity. And he deals with marriage and sexual immorality. And he says, we are a people that do not worship sex, not afraid of sex. Christians seem to have managed to have family. A lot of times, big families. Christianity is not prudish. We're not afraid to talk about what God was not afraid to create. Don't be afraid to talk about what God wasn't afraid to create. And so God has made some divine boundaries for the expression of sexuality, but God's not afraid of it. It's just how it's used. And then he says that... uh, We are a people who cling to divine promises instead of ourselves. So we ought to be loving people. And he names four kinds of people we ought to be loving. Number one, uh, keep, and in the Greek, continue to love the brethren. Keep on doing what you've been doing. Continue to love your brothers. Uh, And that is so important. Christianity is no better than the love being expressed. Bertrand Russell uh, wrote a book, Why I Am Not a Christian, and an atheist, brilliant atheist out of England, Why I Am Not a Christian. And he said basically this, I can go along with some of the teachings of Christ, although I don't keep them, but I can agree that he was a great teacher. But my biggest problem with Christianity is I know so many people who claim to know him and I've seen the way they live. It's the lives of Christians that tells me Christianity must not be true. Now, that's a a question to ask yourself. Has anyone ever accused you of loving other believers? Is that obvious? The greatest advertisement for Christ is Christians. The greatest advertisement against Christ might be so-called Christians. Do you know anyone naming the name of Christ that live a thousand miles away from what he says? They're not loving. They're this, they're that whatever, but love is not the mark. Three reasons you ought to be measuring yourself by, am I loving brothers and sisters in Christ? Am I loving them? Number one, Christ said it's a badge of identity that you're a follower of Christ. Don't tell them all your views. Don't tell them all your doctrine. Show them how to love. Are you loving anybody? And that is a way to measure. Don't start telling them that you are a fundamentalist and we believe the Bible. They could care less. You start off by showing them a way to relate to people, and especially those who are fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Have you ever seen some families that are always fighting with each other? I mean, And if they haven't had a fight yet, wait till the parents die and they start fighting over the money. The whole family unity can go apart over $1,000. Have you seen relationships that are no better than a $100 bill? Oh, you better believe it. Everywhere. I can't stand my brother. Can't stand my sister. Oh, I can't wait to meet the rest of your family. No, I've met you. I don't want to meet the rest. He says, by loving your brother, it's a true mark to the non-looking world. He said, the world, 
unbelievers don't look at our doctrine or our listen to our preachers. They look to us who say we know Christ. How you live. Can they see the love of God being manifested? He said that's what you owe the world. They ought to see love de demonstrated in you and I. Two, uh, you need to uh, love because it's going to give you the assurance that you're really saved. Listen to this verse, 1 John 3.14. We know that we've passed out of death into life because we are perfect. Because we love the brethren. He who does not love abides in death. Can you recall when the love of God was gushed abroad in your heart and something that immediately happened to you is you begin without any course, you immediately fell in love with the people of God. It's the way you know you passed from death to life. I was a 14-year-old punk uh, growing up on Presley and R&B on KDIA. And I went to a church that looked like it was planted in the hills of Oklahoma, a bunch of Arkies and Midwesterners in South Richmond, uh, gray-haired women, long hair, holiness kind of people, uh, long dress. You talk about it out of keeping with the culture I was growing up with. They were old-fashioned. They didn't wear makeup. They didn't wear jewelry. And they weren't that attractive by the external appearance. But I know this much. I know this. Nobody told me to do it. Nobody told me to do it. But the night I put faith in Christ at a Tuesday night prayer meeting, there were maybe 50 people at that meeting. I wouldn't let anybody leave that place until I hugged them as a 14-year-old punk with a leather jacket, Dixie peach in my hair, and trying to be the baddest thing in South Richmond. Why? Sister Bankston, an old missionary woman, probably in her 70s, 75, gray-headed, hair in a bun, taught my Sunday school class many times. I barely, I only stayed awake because my dad had a way of keeping you awake. <laughs> I immediately fell in love with her in a way I could never express. I immediately fell in love with a generation that grew up back there, totally unrelated. It happened immediately. No courses. And I hugged and I wept. took me an hour after I got up from the altar to hug everybody in that church and tell them, thanks for all the years you taught me, all the years you've been praying. I'm so glad we're going to heaven together. I just immediately fell in love with you. What done happened? It's called the new birth. You don't like Christians because you don't know Christ. You don't know Christ. You don't know Christ. Well, I got hurt in that last church. Well, welcome to the human race. You're going to get hurt if you never go to church. Well, they disappointed me. Well, you disappointed us. Let's keep on. Let's keep the thing going and make an excuse. I can't love anymore. When did you ever love? Have you loved as much as Christ? Have you loved a Calvary love? All the excuses. You can't even know if you're really saved if you don't love the brethren. 1 John 3, 14. Third reason you ought to do this, it pleases God when we love he said in uh, Psalm 133, how blessed is it when brethren dwell together in unity, when we actually get along with these. God says it's blessed. We've been called to continue to love one another, to show the world, to give assurance to ourselves, and to please the Father. Then he says we ought to love strangers. And, and that doesn't mean strange people. Some of you are strange, but I'm commanded to love you. It's strangers. 
And the idea is aliens. Uh, this was the thing in the New Testament. Many of the saints were on the road. They were fleeing persecution. Uh, they might have been itinerary missionaries, evangelists. And in those days, to stay at a motel or an inn was a dangerous place. They many times functioned as a brothel plus a rowdy place of corral. They were dangerous. They were, they were bad news. So these believers on the road, where could they stay if they came by? Where were they, they housed? Where were they accommodated? And he's saying, be willing, be willing. And, and there's early church writers who said if a guy wanted to stay three days, he was a false teacher. It was the idea a day or two. They didn't just move in with you. But it was the idea they, they need a place to stay. And he said, we ought to be loving strangers, those that we haven't necessarily known. Can anyone that you don't know well ever get into your circle of influence to be benefited? And he says, love them. Then he makes the analogy, by the way, by the way, some have entertained angels unaware and most likely goes back to Genesis 18 with Abraham entertaining the three strangers, one of whom happened to be the son of God and two angelic beings. He didn't know it. He just said, let's fix them some dinner. You can stay here. And he uses that analogy. You never quite know who you might be entertaining. You might be entertaining the Apostle Paul. You might be entertaining the Apostle Peter. You, you just never know what's in the package. He goes on, you ought to be loving and caring for prisoners. In chapter 10, he said, many of you have gone to prison for your faith. How, do you know anybody that's ever gone to jail because they're a Christian? In your, in your sphere, I don't. I don't think I've ever visited anybody in this country in prison for the faith. But they were in prison constantly. Peter's in jail, Acts 12. Uh, they're in jail, Paul, there in Acts 16. It was common to be in jail for preaching the gospel. And in those days, if you went to prison, uh, the rats were there. Many times an open latrine was there. The sewer ran through the cell like the Mamertine prison in Rome. Uh, nobody fed you. There, there was no color TV. Uh, there was no one. The meals, if the saints did not bring you food, you didn't have anything to eat. You remember Paul saying this? It's very moving. 2 Timothy 4. Timothy, get to me before winter. It's cold in this cell. Bring me my garment. Bring me the parchments. Basically, I'm a cold man in this subterranean prison. I need meals. I need reading material. And I need to get warm. And I love the statement he says, come before winter. And there's people in your life that are saying, I'm in the winter of life. When will you come? When will you come? So he says, don't forget those in prison. And then he goes on and says, those being mistreated. Chapter 10, once again, you lost your houses. They've kicked you out of your jobs. Um, you know why so many of us Christians are so sassy and independent? We've never suffered together. There's not a person here that's suffered from the faith. No. We whine a lot, but we haven't suffered. There's nobody here healing up from getting a whipping this week because you preached Christ or stood for him on the job. It creates such an impudence and such an independence, and I don't want to be bothered. He's telling the saints, when a guy's in prison, nobody wants to visit him because he's afraid he may get the same whipping or be identified with this man. Go, go see them. And if someone's mistreated, 
Why don't you act as though all of their beatings were being placed on your back? Mistreated people are never attractive. Be concerned for those suffering as if every blow they receive puts a strike across their own back. Now, we come to loving pu uh, purity. Listen to what Pliny the Younger, early church historian, said about Christians. They bind themselves by an oath not to any criminal end, but to avoid theft or robbery or adultery, never to break their word or repudiate a deposit when called on to refund it. They're honest, they're moral, uh, they keep their word. And here we've got a church planet. Let's take 50 AD for the book of Hebrews. Let's take that. Are you aware of what was going on in Rome in 50 AD? Are you aware what the culture was like? Well, let me tell you a few things. Um, Caligula will come to power in that era. Caligula eventually marries his sister, runs around the Senate naked, has orgies all the time, that so many of the emperors of Rome were uh, oftentimes uh, in alternate lifestyles, sex parties, drunkenness. This was the government. Imagine we had a sitting at the uh, House of Representatives. What if it was a love-in? What if our president married uh, his own brother or his own sister? This is what was going on in Rome. Greece, Greece, uh, where the sexual mores of the day were this. Sex is a, uh, just a, a physical appetite to be satisfied whenever, with whoever, without any moral boundaries. It's just a physical impulse. Uh, I read the quote from a pornographic magazine that I did not own, but in my research, uh, it said, uh, this is what one writer said. Sex is a function of the body, a drive which man shares with animals, like eating, drinking, and sleeping. It's a physical demand that must be satisfied. If you don't satisfy it, you will have all sorts of neurosis and repressive psychosis, which are two psychological terms that you're messed up. Sex is here to stay. Let's forget the prudery that makes us hide from it. Throw away those inhibitions. Find a girl who's like-minded and let yourself go. And so he addresses these believers. Besides loving people, love purity. And he talks about two things. It's interesting. Honor marriage, and he uses a euphemism, the marriage bed, which was sexual expression in the marriage. Honor that. Esteem it. Put it in the right place. Prohibits any sexuality outside of the marriage bed, which is interesting. What's going on in our culture? Fewer and fewer people are getting married. Don't have to. I'll just live with them. I don't want to get married. That means you've got to split up the property if we break up. I just want access to sex. And I don't promise you anything, baby. Don't get sick on me because I'm out of here. I make no covenants. I make no promises. It's live together for convenience. I don't, want, I don't believe in marriage. And as that value goes down and depreciates, guess what goes up? Every kind of sexuality you can imagine. Rape is really in, even at Stanford. 
And now we have a Jewish lawyer taking up this case. Imagine this. Imagine this today in our papers. This is the case. Should the penalty for raping her when she's unconscious be as much as if she's conscious? This is being dated right now. The lawyer's Rosen. The crime ought to be the same if she's asleep because of too much booze or we knocked her out. Raping her then, ah, that's one penalty. Matter of fact, not as great. But if she is awake, you know, uh, maybe a little bit more, a little bit more or less. You mean we're actually down to this. What kind of, matter of fact, six months is all a guy deserves for forcing himself on a girl while she's unconscious. And we think we're spending time in court trying to figure out what we ought to penalize the guy. Rape is abounding on campuses where you're getting your Ph.D. and just hope your daughter's not raped while she's getting the degree. These are the sophisticated minds. Frat parties all the time. Uh, Co-ed dorms where you just sleep with your girlfriend. Now, our bathrooms, you know, come on, you got to get broad-minded. You can't, can't be having this gender stuff. Get rid of that. I just heard a celebration that they've now got a unisex uh, laboratory or I read the bathroom at the White House. Just hearing uh, a gay lesbian being interviewed for Pride Week, and this is a big breakthrough. So what's going on? Will sex ever stop? No, it's rampant. It's out of control. It's on fire. You're never going to stop people from being immoral. Never. The only thing that can do that is Christ. And people, and you're never going to, this code right here is uh, my, if this was being heard online and broadcasted, we'd have pickets out front. All we're saying the biblical view is sex is within the boundaries of a God-ordained marriage. All other expressions are forbidden. There's three reasons God gave us sex, biblically. Number one, Steve and Steve have never had a baby. That's, they just haven't pulled that off yet. Two Steves, you know, Molly and me, and a baby makes three. But you better have Molly. And you better be a man. God said the race is to be propagated and kept going by means of procreation and the sex act. So that was strongly given to us in Genesis. When you read Proverbs 5 and Song of Solomon, you find out the God who created sexuality intended it to be pleasurable and one of the great uh, privileges of life in marriage. And God says, that's all right. It's blessed. It's enjoyed. Enjoy it. It's all right to smile as a Christian in the midst of sex because God's favor is on that. He said it's honorable, it, it, it's healthy, it's good. But then he also gave sex in marriage to prevent immoral behavior, and most of the early church all came out of immoral lifestyle because when you reach the Gentiles, they were all immoral. They all had no boundaries. Only the Jews had been taught any boundaries. The Gentiles had none. So he's just addressing that. And here's the issue. I'd say two things, two M's. Could Mark and give me an insight on your philosophy, and I can tell you if you were a Christian or not. Here they are. What you think about morals and what you think about money. Those two things will reveal to me if you're a Christian. Morals and money. Besides whether you love the brethren or not. But let's just step over here. What's your view on morals? Well, I believe you can do anything. doesn't matter. Da, da, da. Oh, you got a good pagan view. Yeah, that's the view of America. Everybody's doing it. Help yourself. Right? Who do you know that's not doing it, that's outside of Christ? 
or thinks it's okay. Just use birth control, don't get caught. Okay, that is the view. This is the view we're raising our children, our grandchildren, and by which we miraculously, by the grace of God, still exist in the Bay Area to still be proclaiming a divine viewpoint. God says, it's wrong, don't do it. What are you going to do about it? I'm going to judge you. And I'll have the final say. He who does these things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. 1 Corinthians 6, 9. Revelation 21, 8. And all liars shall have their part in the lake of fire and all of the sexually immoral. It's just sex. I know it. It's just God. That's what he said. God will judge all immoral behavior, everything outside of the marriage bond. He said, I will see to it that it's judged. Don't do it. Flee it. Get away from it. Don't sleep with it. Don't endorse it. Don't buy it philosophically, mentally. Teach what the Bible says. He said, it's impossible to live that way. It is. You have to have divine help. But you first of all got to agree with God. Do you agree with his view? And then he says, my son and my spirit are the power, are the power to live this kind of life. Christianity is not difficult. It's impossible. You can only live like a Christian if you know Christ. So today, what would I say to you? You say, well, I'm sleeping with my girlfriend. Well, uh, hey, I hope you're having a good time as you go to hell. But we've got a cure. You like to go to heaven and enjoy sex. Man, tell me more. You receive Jesus Christ, and you get married to that girlfriend and treat her right. And if children come, honor her. Treat the marriage with honor. You have to ask yourself, do you think marriage is honorable? Is it a good thing to be married? We ought to advertise it. We ought to advertise it. Is it better than a mistress? Are you praying about it? <laughs> See, in Rome, in the Greek culture, you had one woman that you called wife because you didn't want your children to be called bastards. She was for the birth and the name. This is the family name is tied up with this woman. But over here, I have mistresses that don't get inheritance, and my children aren't named. They're for pleasure alone. Very, this is what Greek culture was all about. It's what the Romans did. So today, what is it? You go to a movie to see what sex could be like outside of marriage because it's always more exciting, no obligation. They're always beautiful. And guess what? After the bill's paid, you're home and free, no more obligations. Then you go home, and there's a wife. And just think if you gave her seven kids. B.B. King's got a song, I Got the Blues. I gave you seven children, and you want to give them back. How blue can you get? And wonder why there's not a glitter in her eye. It's you. She knows her only birth control is to stay away from you. And this is what many of our parents grew up. They knew nothing about that but the burden of a family. And then to be the sex queen while I'm staying up all night with a sick baby, changing the diapers, seeing them through sickness, and then Playboy says, you need a playmate. No, I need a faithful, godly wife that helps me raise the offspring we have. And I ought to honor her. She doesn't have to look like a playmate of the month. I used to wonder how my dad could love my mother. She lost her figure, lost her beauty. Seven children later, a nervous breakdown later. It was not until I got saved that my mother became beautiful. She's got a different set of lenses to interpret her value. Well, he finally says, 
Uh, we ought to love the promises of God more than money. And he says something here in the midst. These, these uh, exhortations are just, they don't even seem to cohere. I had a struggle. Do this one, talk about marriage. Now we go to money, uh, love people. Now, now he just steps up here. He says, keep your lives free from the love of money. Well, that's not too hard when you're broke. But can you love money while you're broke? And these believers had suffered many things. And he says, be content or satisfied with what you have. Let me ask you this. Is that the American way of life? I mean, is advertisements to keep you content or to create another desire? You deserve this. You need another car. You need another house. Obviously, it's keeping us dissatisfied and it's just a way of life by people are just always discontent, uh, can't get enough. And the Ecclesiastes says, he who loves money can never get enough money. It just, it just never ends. But he says, you ought to keep your life free from the love of money. And that's the problem. Uh, it's not money. It's like sex is not the problem. It's where it is expressed. Is it in marriage or in immorality? Money's not the problem. It's our attitude about it. If you love it, and the Pharisees loved it, false teachers love it. He said of church leadership, this is something to keep in mind. First Timothy said, when you look for a church, church leader, look for a man that does not love money. Why? He'll probably be overseeing church money. So he better not be a money grabber. And uh, believe me, many of the preachers I grew up with, there was little money in their lives for them to love. But I've even seen a broke man that can love it, having it on his mind all the time. Do we all need money? Yeah, well, there's a few more of you felt that. Come on, take it out. You better believe you need money. There's no advantages to being broke. When you read Proverbs, God is close to a poor man, but he never endorses poverty is the way to live. It just says God won't give up on a poor man. The poor man has hardly no advantages. He can't get health care, can't get his teeth fixed, cannot educate his children, cannot do... It is, there's no advantages to being broke and being poor. We all need money. And in church, what's rough is all the philosophies we have about money. You know why many of you don't give? You're a slave to covetousness. You keep yourself so in debt, you can never afford to honor God. It's credit card debt, credit card debt. I gotta have this. I gotta have that. Okay, and he says to these believers, find your contentment in God, and he makes this marvelous statement. He says, God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. Now, by the way, this is the very same Greek word used of Christ on the cross. My God, my God, why did you forsake me? The very same word. God the Son was forsaken that he might make you a promise you'll never be forsaken. Now think of that. Will I ever be forsaken or left alone by God? Death, divorce, sickness, Cancer, when does God bail out? Never. What effect should this have on me? Here's what he says. So then I can say, the Lord is my helper. Omnipotence is my helper. Omniscience is my helper. The eternal God is my helper. If that is true, and he says it is, Going from Psalms 118, 
going back to Joshua 1, don't be afraid, Joshua. Don't be afraid. As I was with Moses, I'll be with you. Go in the land. Don't be afraid. Be of good courage. I am with you, and I will not leave you. Go, Joshua. You need courage. The giants are big. The land is dangerous. I will be with you. Can you make it if God will be with you? If God is for you, ask yourself, is God for me? If you're God's child, And you're wanting to just walk in his paths. He's not for you in sin. He'll be there, but he's not for you. But he's the one that'll get you out. He never abandons his own. I found a song, a man we used to have come to this church named Gabe Cedillo. Used to sing it. This was his song. Sweet is a promise. I will not forget thee. Nothing can molest or turn my soul away. Even though the night be dark within the valley, just beyond is shining one eternal day. And I can hear this resonating baritone voice. I will not forget thee or leave thee. In my hands I'll hold thee. In my arms I'll fold thee. I will not forget or leave thee. I am thy redeemer. I will care for thee. Money will run out. Sex will end even in this life. Friends will die. The body will cave in. But this God will never cease to be with us, even in the valley of the shadow, even in your last moments. As we attend at the funeral of Carolyn's cousin, died 52, buried him last Thursday, diagnosed with cancer in January, dies the 1st of June to watch his wife and children and the remarkable courage they displayed. Somebody has to be with that wife to be this strong, this courageous, and to make it through the veil of tears. I will not leave nor forsake thee. Let me ask you, who do you have that will be with you forever? Let me read to you from Psalms. And then conclude, the Lord is on my side. I will not fear. Psalms 118, verse 6. The Lord is on my side as my helper. I shall look on triumph on those who hate me. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. And in the Greek language here, he says, ume, ude, ume, five negatives. I will not, no, I will not ever leave thee nor forsake thee. It's only found in how firm a foundation. I will not, I will not, I will not leave nor forsake thee. He's telling these believers, no matter what persecutions come, no matter what your state, whether you lose your job, lose your health, lose your money, lose your vitality, one thing I must say, the one thing I don't want to lose in all of life is my God. And my God says, you got me forever. You've got me forever. Everything else will go away. Friends, health, family. I don't like getting older because I don't like burying people that I know. I don't like having dear women in this church that had to say goodbye to husbands. It's no fun getting older if you don't have any hope that anybody's with you that will never leave you nor forsake you. Only 
in Jesus Christ through Christianity can you get such a friend to the end. Love people. Love purity. Love the promises of God. If you know this promise, you could say, God is my helper. I can do whatever he wants me to do. Not because I'm strong, but because his help is secure. Father, if there's someone here today wrestling with discouragement, wrestling with losses, with fear, just overwhelmed by life, would you assure them of your help and that you won't leave nor abandon them? Lord Jesus, you know what it was to be abandoned. And you've told your followers, you'll never experience that with me. Never. No, never. No, never. Will I leave you in the lurch and leave you without aid. We are eternally grateful. All the things you've told us to say no to have been for our good. You've given all good gifts. You've given us finances. You gave us marriage. You gave us human love. You gave us human expression for it that pleases you, that honors you. I pray today, help our young people in the struggle. Help all of us adults in our attitude about money. Will we love it or use it? Will we cling to it or invest it? May our hearts be captured to say, I'd rather have Jesus than everything this world has to offer. I pray, strengthen our hearts today as we live in a pagan culture and are totally out of step with everything being legislated and practiced. We stand out, counterculture people. Give us the courage to stand with the God who is our help. In Jesus' name, amen.